When I was in elementary school, I was part of a little girl's softball team. Now, we had several practices before our first real game, but when it arrived, I can remember being very, very nervous. I can still remember my first time at bat. Now, I wasn't very tall, and I was really timid, and for whatever reason, I unintentionally kind of hunched down, and that created a a really small strike zone. I was hard to pitch to, and and without standing there, without doing anything, just standing there, the pitches went by, and I got a walk, and I was on first base before I knew it. Now, I remember thinking, this is pretty cool being on first base, but deep down inside, I knew that it was more of a fluke than anything else, because I hadn't done anything. I hadn't tried, and so my next time at bat, I had a decision to make. Was I going to swing? And yet, I was so scared, not of swinging, but really of fear of missing in front of everybody. And so I just stood there again and and again. They walked me. And I realized that every time I went up to bat, if I stood in just the right way, I could get a walk every time. And every time I came to bat, it got a little bit easier just to stand there and do nothing. Now, I don't think I took a swing at a single pitch in a game situation that entire season. I got on base every time, but what fun is it to go through life just on a walk? What fun is it to be in the game and not really part of it? And a different kind of fear started to develop within me. I didn't want to be that little girl just standing scared at the plate. I decided that life was bigger than that. I wanted to be able to go back and kind of shake some sense into her and and let her know that as much as you're afraid of, of missing or being embarrassed, there's a far greater fear of doing nothing in life. There are lots of times that we're scared of the pitches that come our way, and it's easier to just let them pass us by. Maybe we're afraid of failure. Maybe we're afraid of embarrassing ourselves in front of others. But who wants to go through life kind of just getting a pass? Deep down inside, don't we all have a greater fear of of doing nothing? We can listen to that and let it spur us on so that we don't just stand there, but we at least uh, swing at some of the pitches I decided that I would rather strike out than be scared and let things pass me by. At least that meant I would be trying. At least it would mean I was part of the game. We can all try. We can all give something. This year, the theme has been Seize the Day, Carpe Diem. Now, the carpe is a term that you, you might remember has farming kind of uh, connotations. It means to seize or to pluck. To pluck the ripe fruit today because it might go bad tomorrow. To harvest today to provide for your tomorrows. To seize opportunities now that might not always be there. We've been focusing that God has given us the tremendous gift of life. And we're called to live it to the fullest, to make the most out of our lives. 
Now, today's scripture passage comes from the book of Nehemiah. It's part of the history, the story of the Israelite people from the time when they were uh, in captivity and in exile. Nehemiah was a high-ranking official in the court of King Artaxerxes. Now, it might not sound like much, but he was cupbearer to the king. Now, this was the time when kings, the royalty, were in great fear of being poisoned or assassinated. And so the cupbearer was someone you put a great deal of trust in. They would have been someone who prepared and watched over and and delivered you your drinks so that you knew they were safe. This was your trusted confidant. Yet it wasn't really a two-way street. It wasn't a friendship per se. At the beginning of this book, we're told that Jews who had been living in Jerusalem came to the court of Artaxerxes and spoke to Nehemiah. And he asked them, how is it in Jerusalem? And he was brokenhearted to hear that things were terrible. It was a mess. There were enemy armies uh, besieging the city and, and the defenses had been stripped away. Now, when he went to deliver the drink to the king, he couldn't hide that on his face. And it says in the scripture, he had never been sad in the presence of the king before. Now, these weren't best friends. The king could be sad or angry in front of the cupbearer. Then it would be the added responsibility of the cupbearer to cheer up the king. The king might confide in the cupbearer, but it didn't work in the other way. The cupbearer was supposed to be positive and happy and smiling in front of the king. And so this time when the king sees that something terrible has happened in his life, he has a choice to make. Nehemiah can decide to just let it pass him by and stand there and put on a smile and and do nothing. But instead, he has this deep faith in God and he decides that even though he risks so much, he's going to speak his mind and he tells about what's going on in his homeland. And he asks if he can return and help rebuild the wall. And because of this incredible relationship and and probably because of the kind of work Nehemiah had done, the king grants him his request and, and makes sure he has safe passage and the materials to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah just couldn't stand by and do nothing. He was able to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Robert F. Kennedy. It comes from a speech he delivered in 1966, and he says, Some believe there is nothing one man or one woman can do against the enormous array of the world's ills. Yet many of the world's great movements of thought and action have flowed from the work of a single man. A young monk began the Protestant Reformation. A young general extended an empire from Macedonia to the borders of the earth. And a young woman reclaimed the territory of France. These moved the world, and so can we all. Few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events, and in the total of all those acts will be written the history of this generation. There are three things that we can discuss this morning that can help us to change a small portion of events and collectively to have an impact on history. First, you may not be able to do everything 
but do something with what you have. This Christmas, the movie Unbroken is coming out. It's being directed by Angelina Jolie, and it's the story of Louis Zamperini. Now, we've talked about him before. He was an incredible man. He passed away just this past July at the age of 97, just a few months uh, short of seeing his own movie premiere. The truth is no one actually thought there would be a movie premiere because everyone thought it would be impossible to take his life story and make it into a movie. There's simply too much there. When he was a young boy, he discovered a gift for running, and he would go on to compete in the 1936 Olympic Games. And he was running in the 5,000-meter race, which he wasn't accustomed to because he was used to running in the mile race, but they didn't have that. But he finished his last lap so fast that it caught the attention of Adolf Hitler, who wanted to meet him. Everyone thought that at the 1940 Olympics that he would come back and break the mile, the four-minute mile. But World War II broke out, and he enlisted in the U.S. Air Corps. He became a bombardier on a plane running uh, missions in the South Pacific. And on one of those missions, his plane went down in the ocean, and he and two others... Uh, two other crew members were in a life, ra life raft adrift for 47 days. They were captured by the Japanese and taken to a prisoner of war camp where he would survive two years of incredible brutality, torture, starvation, and mental anguish. But he would survive, and he returned home. He married a wonderful woman but not too long after, he sank into a deep depression and into alcoholism. He had this overwhelming, consuming desire to exact revenge upon the guards of the POW camp where he had been held. One night, he dreamt that he was strangling the chief guard, only to wake up and find that he was strangling his wife. She begged him to go to church with her and it wasn't until he went to a Billy Graham crusade that he was finally able to surrender his life to God and, and find peace and joy and meaning in life. He would start a boys' camp for boys who had troubled uh, backgrounds, and he would give so much back in his life throughout all of these years. You can understand why people thought that was just too much to capture in a movie. One of the fascinating things about his life was his relationship with his older brother, Pete. Pete was really the one who helped to turn his life toward this gift of running in his early years. Pete Zamperini was the eldest of all the children, and he was two years older than his brother, Louis. And, and Pete was kind of the quintessential, perfect, oldest child. He pulled out his mother's chair when they sat down for dinner, he was respectful of everyone. He watched out for his siblings. He would go to bed every night at 7 so that he could wake up at 2.30 to go on a three-hour paper route. But he made sure to tuck the alarm clock under his pillow so he wouldn't wake up Louie, who was sleeping in the same room. You know, Pete just seemed to be perfect. And then there was Louie. He seemed to be everything that Pete wasn't. He started smoking by the time he was five years old. He was drinking when he was eight, 
and he started stealing at about the same time. Everybody around town knew him because of all the trouble he caused. He broke into businesses and homes. He would steal food out of people's kitchens. He was causing all kinds of problems. His parents loved him dearly, but they were kind of at their wits' end. They tried everything they knew to get him to stop. His father would be harsh, and his mother even resulted to bribing his friends with cakes and cookies so she could find out information on what Louis was up to. But none of it seemed to make a difference. When Louis went into middle school, he was bullied, and he had a terrible temper, and he was always getting in fights and always being called into the principal's office. He was running away, and, and yet he'd come back home. He had an incredible love for his family. He just couldn't seem to behave. Well, there came a time uh, in that period where he heard that there are only a certain amount of household door locks. And so he got this idea to collect all sorts of keys, and he would try them on doors around town, and surely he would find one that would match up. Well, in the end, he only found one key that worked to a different door, and that door was the door to the school gym. And it wasn't too long before the school administration saw a sharp contrast between the number of 10-cent admission tickets they were selling for the boys' basketball games and the actual number of students in the stands. The principal figured out what was going on, and he called Louie into his office again, and he told him that he would be forbidden to participate in any sports or social activities for the entire ninth grade year. Well, Louie didn't care. He wasn't going to participate in anything anyway. And so he walked out, but his brother Pete heard about it. And Pete went directly to the principal's office. He took his mother with him, even though his mother couldn't really speak English. She was Italian, but he thought he, uh, that her presence would give his presentation some added weight. And then Pete begged the principal to rethink his decision and he begged the principal to allow Louis to be a part of a sports team. And the principal said no. He was done. He was fed up with Louis. But Pete told the principal, look, my brother just wants attention. And he doesn't know how to get it by behaving. And so he acts out to get punished. If you just give him a chance, I know he'll do well in sports. And I think that's what can change his life. And the principal said no. And so Pete who was all of 16 years old at the time, confronted the principal, and he asked him, will you be able to live with yourself knowing you let Louis fail? Now think of what kind of courage it took for him to confront the principal in that way. He was 16 years old. This was his principal. It wasn't exactly the day and age when uh, there was open, warm communication, and principals and students were on a first-name basis. He had to go to school there, and yet he couldn't stand by and do nothing. In the end, the principal gave in and said that Louis could be on a sports team, and now Pete had to convince his brother to join up. He started working on his brother, training and pushing him, and, and along the way, Louis decided and, and found a love for the peace he felt during running. And so Pete started training him. 
And he had him run his entire paper route, running through people's yards, jumping over the shrubs and bushes. Pete would eventually go off to community college and he would commute home every night after class to help train his brother. He convinced his brother to give up smoking and drinking and, and Louis started working on building up his lung capacity. In the summer, he would run down to the city pool he would dive in and go straight down to the grate at the bottom of the pool and he'd hold on and he'd try to hold on and stay down longer each time. In the end, he was able to stay down and hold his breath for over three minutes, despite the fact that people were jumping in trying to save him. The real person who jumped in his life was his older brother, Pete. It would have been easy for Pete to stand back and, and not say anything. I mean, Pete had, had seen for years all that his parents had tried to do. Pete was probably frustrated with his brother, all the trouble and problems he caused, and yet he couldn't stand by and just let his brother go. He had to stand up for him. For Nehemiah, he didn't know how to build a wall. He was cupbearer to the king, not wall builder. He didn't know what he was going to do when he got to Jerusalem, but he knew he couldn't just stand by. He had to do something. There are times in life when we have that choice to just stand back or to get involved. And it's better life for all of us if we will choose to stand up and speak up for others. I love what Carolyn Cox has to say. We cannot do everything, but we must not do nothing. Second, you may not be able to do everything, but do something with someone else. For Nehemiah, when he returned back to Jerusalem, he didn't know at all that he was going to find. What he found were the two enemy armies gathered there, taunting the people of Jerusalem. Leaders in each army were screaming out these insults, trying to uh, discourage the people before they ever started. You have Sambalat who's, who's asking these questions, what are these feeble Jews trying to do? Now, it's actually much more uh, derogatory than our translations would have us uh, to read. It actually is something more like, what are these incapable misfits trying to accomplish? There's no way you can do this. And later he says, are you trying to revive the stones out of the rubble and the burnt ones at that? Now what happened was that the wall had previously been uh, torn down when they had been taken away into captivity and exile. And so they're trying to uh, pull up these rocks and what was left of the wall and kind of patch it back together. And so some of these walls were, uh, or these rocks were torn and, and burnt from previous attacks. What he's saying is, as soon as you rebuild this wall with broken down rocks, we're just going to tear it down again. And it would be Tobiah, the, the Ammonite, who would say, you know, even a fox could jump on that wall and it would start to crumble. The foxes would gather around these rock piles because there would be rodents living in the rocks. And so these foxes would be all around and he was pointing out, you know, if one of these small foxes just happens to jump on the wall, it'll come crumbling down. He was 
saying you have no workmanship, you don't have the school, uh, the skills to make this possible. The funny thing is, centuries later, the famous archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon was doing excavations in the area, and she addresses this wall, and she said it was of second-rate quality. These weren't wall builders. These weren't professional builders of any sort. And when uh, Nehemiah went back and he's hearing all these taunts by the enemy, he knows that part of them are kind of true. It would have been so easy for him to go back to the royal palace, the easy life, and yet he stayed and, and rallied the people together and, and got them encouraged but behind the dream of building this wall together. None of them could have done it by themselves, but together they would rebuild the wall. Now, not too long ago, you heard from Reverend Greenwald about the the opportunity to become a mentor for Rancho Village Elementary. It's a wonderful way to be involved in the life of a child to make a difference. But one of the things you might not know is the program's designed that the mentors aren't alone. They work together, and it's a group atmosphere. It's the way the entire program has been designed. It started with the Believer's Sunday School class, and they wanted a mission project for their class. But as they started talking about what they wanted to do, this dream kept growing and building. And and finally, they voiced that they wanted to transform the lives of children in Oklahoma City. Now, that's a tall order. How do you go about that? It would have been easy to kind of shrug that off or or think of something smaller. And yet they stayed with it. And and one of the things they realized is, is that their class alone couldn't accomplish that. And yet, working with others, they could accomplish something incredible. They heard the stories of two very special organizations here in Oklahoma City, Cleats for Kids and Fields and Futures. Mark and Stacey McDaniel started the foundation Cleats for Kids, and it's a group that has a mission to provide sports equipment for children in need. Now, the McDaniels are friends with Tim and Liz McLaughlin, who started the foundation Fields and Futures. And its mission is to rebuild sports fields as schools in Oklahoma City, as well as uh, support the coaches and provide mentoring for the the athletes. And so they had complementary goals in mind. And so they were able to work together, Neither one trying to do everything separately, but they could collaborate in something incredible, bigger than either one of them could do alone could happen. And so the leaders of this class and of this ministry started developing something at Rancho Village that was a collaboration. They worked with the staff administration at Rancho Village Elementary and found a principal who was very excited about the possibilities. They worked with the teachers and and found that they were excited to be committed to their students. They developed community leadership and and businesses from around the community and a partnership with St. Luke's Asbury, our campus down there that had already been doing ministry to the school and in the community. And incredible things have happened. Already through the reading program, we are directly working with 200 students. And we're mentoring 15 others When you work together, when you collaborate, when you join together, you realize that you alone might not be able to do everything, but together, something incredible can happen. 
I love the quote from Halford E. Lukacs, the Methodist professor of homiletics, and he says, no one can whistle a symphony. It takes an orchestra to play it. If we will work together, beautiful things can happen. And third, you may not be able to do everything, but don't be afraid to try. For Nehemiah, there is so much that he could have been afraid of. He was afraid of being sad in front of the king. He didn't know how the people in Jerusalem would respond to his leadership. He didn't know if the enemies would attack. He didn't know how to build a wall and if it would be successful. But he didn't let his fears keep him from trying. I love how he responds to the taunts uh, from the enemies where they're calling him to just give up and come down. And he cries out, I am doing something great here. I don't have time to come down. Why should this work uh, suffer for me to spend time coming down to you? Why should I stop to give in to my fear? In 1922, there was a, a man by the name of Asa Jennings who lived in Smyrna. Now, originally, he was from Ontario, New York. And at the age of 24, he started working for the YMCA. Now, when World War I broke out, he volunteered to run one of the foreign YMCA locations, and they, he, he was sent to Smyrna. He was only five foot three, and he had a double scoliosis in his spine, a, a condition that gave him kind of a, a humpback appearance, and yet he had an incredible effect on the people's lives there. For the, the preceding several years, there were tensions between the Greeks and the Turks. And the Turkish government developed new leadership. And their motto was Turkey for the Turks. They wanted Turkey to be reestablished with only uh, people of that Turkish descent. And so they started attacking the minorities that lived there, especially the Armenians and the Christians. In 1914... Uh, they realized that most of the world's attention was focused on the events around the World War I, and so they gathered up uh, thousands and thousands of Armenian men, women, and children and marched them to the interior of the country. And between 1915 and 1918, somewhere between 600,000 and 1 million Armenians lost their lives there. It continued to spiral out of control and when Asa Jennings came to Smyrna, and he was there in 1922, uh, the Greeks and the Turks were just at each other. The Allied forces sent Greek troops in to recapture Smyrna. And once they did that, they started marching into the country. The Allied forces commanded the leader of the Turkish army to lay down his arms. Now, the leader of the Turkish army was Mustafa Kemal, and not only did he refuse to lay down his arms, but he used the event of the Greek soldiers marching into the country as a way to rally up his soldiers, and he declared a national revolt. They viciously attacked the Greek army and pushed them back against the sea wall, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees followed the Greek soldiers into Smyrna. Asa Jennings knew that it was critical to evacuate these people. And uh, he built a hospital for women and children. He constructed 
shelter for all those who were displaced, but the violence continued to spiral out of control. There was a 48-hour period at the beginning of September when over 2,000 Armenians were killed in the city. Civilians were being killed in the streets, and there was no more food and water, and Mustafa Kemal made it known that he was going to take the remainder of the evacuees and march them to the interior of the country in a move that was very reminiscent of what happened to the Armenians just a few years before. And so Asa Jennings knew that something had to be done. On September 13, 1922, Mustafa Kemal ordered his soldiers to set fire to the Armenian quarter of the city. And that fire quickly spread throughout the entire city. And, and shortly thereafter, the order was given for all British and United States citizens to evacuate the city. And all of them left except one, Asa Jennings. And so at that time, you had 350,000 refugees who were Greek and Armenian and one American, Asa Jennings, who stayed behind to see what he could do. He was a worker at the YMCA. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't skilled in negotiations. But he got in his car and he drove out to the Turkish army camp and made arrangements to talk with Mustafa Kemal. He had seen everything that this man had done, and yet he summoned up the courage and he went out and met with this man and he negotiated the response that he could uh, evacuate the, the refugees in the next 11 days. That's all he was given. He went back to Smyrna and he found a Greek ship and, and he had them take 2,000 of the Greek citizens back to Greece and he went with them so he could talk with the Greek government. They refused to give him any ships. Over and over again he pled with them to send ships to Smyrna but finally after all of their no's he told them, look, I'm going to the press. And I'm going to tell them that Mustafa Kemal has guaranteed safe passage. The United States has offered to help protect safe passage. And it's the Greek government who won't send any ships for their Greek citizens. Somehow they decided to change their mind and they sent the ships. And in the next 11 days, he was able to evacuate 350,000 refugees. He would come back to Smyrna, and over the next year, he was able to negotiate evacuations for one million additional people. At the end of the war, both the governments of Greece and Turkey recognized his bravery, his compassion, his integrity, and both of them made him an ambassador in the area. It was Mustafa Kemal who requested that he start the organization American Friends of Turkey, which was the kind of uh, non-denominational counterpart of the YMCA. He was an incredible man, and it was out of his deep faith and relationship with God that he found the courage to try. He could have left, but somehow he found courage to stay, and God uh, bolstered his courage that he drove out to the Turkish army camp and God gave him the words and the strength and the, the presence of mind to speak in such a way that people would listen and respond to him. Out of his relationship with God and his deep abiding faith, he wasn't afraid to try. I love the words. 
from Everett Hale. I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. We have this life to live. Seize the day and do something with it. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.